Good morning, church family. It's a joy to be with you this morning. I'm excited to communicate the word of God to you because I believe that this morning's word is a really important word for us today in our time. I think what God wants to say to us is that the gospel frees us for joyful unity and glorious humility. The gospel frees us for joyful unity and glorious humility. Now, joyful unity does not seem to be a word that fits with our current social climate. Uh, people are unified over all kinds of things, mainly around issues, some people around people, um, but people aren't united in joy. Often it's a union of resentment or a union of bitterness or a union of trying to stick it to someone. But this is not what we see in Philippians chapter 2. We're also called to a glorious humility. Often humility doesn't look very glorious. What we see in the person of Jesus Christ is that humility, when done by faith in the will of the Father, is glorious. That's what I believe God wants to call us to today. So why don't you join me in praying that God would do a special work among us that we might hear his word and believe. All right, why don't you bow your heads with me. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your word specifically in Philippians. God, you've um, called us to be your church today and this time in June 2020. And we pray we would be faithful. God, help us to be faithful. And please, Lord, unite your church. Unite your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off with a little bit of context. We've been doing this the last few weeks, but just as a reminder, Paul is in prison, likely in Rome. He's writing to the church in Philippi, a church that he planted on a missionary trip through Macedonia. Um, he is writing to them because he wants to communicate to them both the reality that he's in prison, but that's not a reason to despair. He is joyful in his sufferings, and they should be too. Uh, but not only that, we're going to find out later in the letter that there's actually some division in the church. And Paul is writing this letter to communicate to them, hey, your union in Christ motivates you for union with each other. So pursue that. Now, today we're jumping into chapter two. We're looking at verses one through four. And I think this word is really important. So without any further ado, let's jump in. Philippians chapter two, verses one through four. So. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of God. Paul begins this passage with the word so, meaning that he's connecting what he's talking about today with what he talked about in the previous verses, which Pastor John Mark preached on last week. Last week, the emphasis of the verses was the reality that if we are in Christ, we are citizens of a new kingdom, and our lifestyle should be worthy of that gospel kingdom. And so we talked about what that looks like. You can go back and listen to last week's uh, uh, message to, to hear more about that from Pastor John Mark. 
Paul today is basing what he's saying today on that reality that if we are living as citizens of God's kingdom, if we're living worthy of the gospel, then here's what life is going to look like. Now, he starts off giving us some ideas of what it looks like to live in Christ. And I know it looks like when he says, the second word you see in your passage, if you're in the English Standard Version of your Bible, is says, so if, if there is. Now, this word if is Paul uh, doing some, 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 some creative work literally or literarily, uh, with what he's with what he's saying, he's going to say if as if this were hypothetical. But I don't want you to hear this as hypothetical. I want you to hear this as the way I believe he means it, which is this is the reality for all of those who are in Christ. And when I say in Christ, what I mean is all of those who have recognized by grace that they are sinners, that none of us can can achieve favor with God on our own, but that. Uh, we're born into sin. None of us can free ourselves from that tyranny of, of, of sin, but that God sent his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that we can never live, to die the death that we deserved to die. He rose again, showing that he has authority over even death and ascended to the right hand of the Father and is going to come back and make everything new. And for all those who trust in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. We are justified, meaning we have right standing before God. We're adopted into his family. We're given his Holy Spirit. And we have promised that when he comes back to make everything new, we get to participate in his new creation. That's the gospel. Everyone who believes in that by faith, not by anything we do, just by faith, is in Christ. And what he's saying is if you're in Christ, here's what you have. There is an encouragement we have in Christ. There is a comfort from love. There's a participation in the spirit. There's affection and sympathy. Now, these are not just subjective emotions that Paul is talking about. Now, I will say that for those who are in Christ, there's a subjective experience of the encouragement of Christ, the comfort of love, the participation of the spirit, the affection and sympathy of God that we experience. And if you ever um, experience loss, or loss of a job, loss of a family member, or had some kind of a need, and the church has come around you and and walked with you through that, as I have many times, um, or if there's been a supernatural display of God's favor in those times of, of desperation, then you know that this can be a subjective experience of, of these things that Paul's talking about. But I believe that Paul's doing more than just talking about our subjective experience. He's talking about a real experience, but a cosmic experience for all those who are in Christ. He says, for if there's any encouragement in Christ, I want to break that down a little bit. He uses the word Christ. Now, Christ is the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Messiah. For Jews, um, in prophetic Jewish literature, you can read it in your Old Testament, there was this promise that there was going to come a king, an anointed one, who was going to Rescue God's people, defeat their enemies, put evil at bay, and establish a worldwide kingdom of peace where everyone prospers, even creation flourishes. That's going to be brought about by this Messiah. Now, Paul is taking that that image of Messiah, and he's translating it and trying to communicate it to this Greek audience in Philippi. And he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Now, he's saying, is there any encouragement? Now, if you know that you are in Christ, you have the promise of new creation, 
then that will embolden you for faithful witness now. There is encouragement in Christ for all those who are who have trusted in Jesus. He goes on to say if there's any comfort from love. This word comfort can also be the word consolation. If you have by grace, again, recognize that you're a sinner and that Jesus died for you, and you know what it means to be embraced, even when the world would tell you that you should be ashamed, that in your worst moment, God reached out to you with his love and went the full distance of love, even to death in the grave, to, to, to redeem you and to forgive your sins. You know what it means to be consoled by the love of God. Participation in the Spirit. Participation is the, is the English translation for the Greek word koinonia, which means it's translated sharing or participation or fellowship. This is the idea that, that, that if you're in Christ and if I'm in Christ, that means that God has given both of us the Holy Spirit who unites us with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and which means we're united with each other. This is a, a fellowship that is deep, that is communal, that is inseparable because it is it is joined in the Godhead who who cannot be separated. So this is the participation in the Spirit. And if there's any affection and sympathy, He's talking about the the knowledge, the, excuse me, the heart heartfelt sympathy that comes from knowing that God has seen us in our need and rescued us. So these are, these, are, these are realities for people who are in Christ. And what Paul is saying is, if that's your reality, which it is if you're in Christ, I want you to make my joy complete. Now, joy has been a theme in Paul's letters. And he's talked about how he rejoices in suffering, talked about how he rejoices in hope. And here he's saying, if, you, uh, if you want my joy to be complete, all of you who are in Christ, what I want you to do. I want you to be one. Look at what he says. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That last phrase, being in full accord and of one mind, I'll talk about it in a second. Um, but uh, it, it means something more like uh, join together in soul with one purpose, he's talking about this is a, a, a union which is a lot deeper than the union that our culture and society can give us today. Today, we can be united over all kinds of things. We can be united over issues like um, the issues about what you think about COVID or what you think about racial reconciliation, the need for it or the lack thereof. You, you can be united around sports teams, which in today's day is difficult to maintain but it but it it can unite people you can be united around the types of phones you have or or, or what any kind of any number of things you can be united around but what god is what paul's calling us to and the holy spirit's calling us to through paul is to a unity that is a lot deeper than any of the surface kinds of unity that we have in uh, our culture and society he says i want you to be of the same mind now this is not just thinking the same things as far as my opinion is the same as your opinion. Um, many of you, if you're part of Christ Community Church, you've, you've watched the videos we've, that our pastors have released about um, coming back together after COVID, etc. And one thing, one passage of scripture we've been resting in and sitting in is the passage from Romans chapter 14, where Paul says to the church in Rome, he says, I know some of you have opinions about what to eat and um, and how to do that. Now, these of you have opposing views on what to eat. Some of you are, are 
uh, are kosher and some of you are, are not kosher. And so, so, but you can both be in the church holding your distinct opinions. But what I want you to do is submit your preferences to one another and walk in love for one another. So this is a mindset that says, I value you and your perspectives. I value you and your interests more than I value mine. I count them more significant than my own, which we're going to see in verse 3 when we get there. So that's the same mind he's talking about, the same mindset. Then he says, having the same love. In other words, I want your love to be the same. This is the kind of love that we see fully displayed in Jesus Christ, who, who gave himself fully, emptied himself fully on behalf of us. I want you to have the, the same love. And I want you to be one in soul. I want your lives to be joined together. So that's the kind of unity that I want from you. And I want you to, to hear this. He's not saying to get the same mind. I want you, we, we, what we need to do is have your opinion and convince everybody around to have the same opinion as you. Have your love and then commit to everybody around to have the same love as you. Have your life and then commit, commit to everybody else to have the same kind of lifestyle as you. He's not saying that. What he's saying is something much more profound. See, I'm not a carpenter, but if I were, I would know how to use a protractor. And because I was in math class, I still got a little bit of, 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 of credibility with that. But if I want to know what 45 degrees looks like, I don't just take my hands and determine that on my own. What I do is I go to a standard and I measure the angle based off of that set standard. We do the same thing with weight. We do the same thing with with gold. We do the same thing with, with, with many things that we want to make sure that are correct. If we're trying to build a building, we have a plumb line that tells us what straight really looks like. And so Paul is not saying, I want you to, to try to agree on your opinions. What he's saying is I want you to come to the same mind, the same love, the same life. And that means we need to find the standard. Now, what we're going to find out next week, and I want to, I don't want to steal uh, from John Mark for next week, because next week's going to be beautiful. We're going to get into the poetry of the incarnation of Jesus, the God-man who, who became flesh and poured himself out for us. But I want you to notice that when Paul in verse 2 says, being of the same mind, he repeats this in verse 5 when he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So the standard is Jesus. What should your mind look like? The mind of Christ. What should your love look like? The love of Christ. What should your life look like? The life of Christ. That's what he's calling us to. And what that is going to look like is, what that, what that going to look like is a radical but glorious humility. Let's continue. So continuing in verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, what Paul is calling us to, I believe the Holy Spirit is calling us to here, is that the gospel frees us, liberates us from two pursuits and liberates us for a different pursuit. So what does the gospel free us from? The first thing the gospel frees us from is from this frantic search for identity. Look in verse 3 when he says, 
do nothing from rivalry. Some translations translate this word for rivalry as selfish ambition. In other words, this seeking of glory, seeking of, of admiration, uh, seeking to find my identity in what I do. And that can be found both in trying to get my approval from other people for what I do by putting letters behind my name or, or, or accomplishing some incredible feat or whatever, or it can be trying to look to my own standard for myself, trying to make a name for myself to myself, like trying to, to maintain some kind of a high self-esteem. The second thing he says is nothing from conceit. This word for conceit actually means vain glory or, or empty glory. In other words, um, the, the gospel is freeing us from is from meaningless pursuits. All of us are want I believe it's a God-given desire to desire meaning and significance. And what, what Paul is saying is the gospel frees us from meaningless pursuits that don't actually result in true meaning. Now, um, Dr. Timothy Keller, who is the former pastor of a Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, uh, describes this idea of identity and meaning uh, in his little small book, which is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. If you've never heard of this or you don't have it, I really encourage you to read it. I'm going to read a couple passages from here because I think they really have helped me think about these verses. And the first thing I want to talk to you about from Dr. Keller is he, he talks about the human ego, which is, I believe, that this this part of the human psyche that's running after identity, running after meaning, and he compares it to a balloon. And so a balloon can be inflated or deflated. And if we're running, chasing after identity or chasing after meaning in the wrong places, then what's happening is if we're, if we're successful at finding identity and meaning, we're going to be inflated like a balloon. And if we, if we don't, find identity or meaning, we're going to be deflated, just like a deflated balloon. But the problem with, with both of those deals, whether you're inflated or deflated, is you're made of, of air. Listen to what, what, what Dr. Keller says when he's um, talking about this. His walking around does not hurt my toes unless there is already something wrong with them. So he's talking about walking and talking about toes. Let's see what he means. My ego would not hurt unless there was something terribly wrong with it. So he's comparing his ego to his toes, saying, if I walk around on my toes, I'm not going to hurt unless something's wrong with them. Likewise, if I'm walking around with my ego, it's not going to hurt unless something is terribly wrong with it. Think about it. It is very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves. That is because there is something wrong with my ego. There is something wrong with my identity. There is something wrong with my sense of self. It is never happy. It is always drawing attention to itself. You hear what he's, what he's saying is that, is that there's something wrong with us, that we're always seeking identity and meaning in all different kinds of places. And we get inflated and deflated, depending on, on how well we do at those things. Now, this is not what God made us for. God did not make us to run around looking for identity. He didn't... We, he didn't make us to run around looking for, for meaning. He gives us identity and he gives us meaning and he wants us to receive that as a gift of, of grace. See, here's the reality 
is that none of us uh, deserve on our own any kind of significance. All of us have, have, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have been created in his image with inherent dignity. So we all have identity as, as image bearers of God. That's been marred by sin. And so whereas we should be pursuing true meaning, which is the glory of God in all of the earth, uh, we often substitute that for things that we think are going to bring us meaning. Uh, it could be something as, as frivolous as, as retweets or reposts on social media, or it could be something as, as insignificant but yet seemingly significant as, as, as more education and letters behind my name or whatever. So I think, I think we can get stuck in this trap of, of giving our lives for identity and meaning. But what God wants to do is, is give it to us. Give it to us freely as a gift. Listen to what um, he, he, he says later on in the book. He says, do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance, what he's talking about is that everybody's identity works. When we're running around trying to seek identity and seek, and seek meaning, we're always either winning or we're losing. So we're, we're always basing our feelings on our performance. He says that in the gospel, we get the verdict before we get the performance. The atheist might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They are a good person, and they hope that eventually they will get a verdict that confirms that they are a good person. Performance leads to the verdict for the Buddhist too. Performance leads to the verdict. If you are a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means that every day you are in the courtroom. Every day you are on trial. When you're running through life, whether trying to buy this house or buy this car or date this person or keep this friend or please this person, we're in a courtroom trying to see if we measure up. We're on trial. That is the problem. But Paul is saying that in Christianity, the verdict leads to performance. It is not the performance that leads to the verdict. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's identity, friends. Or take Romans 8, 1, which says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's identity. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God imputes Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into his family. In other words, God can say to us, just as he once said to Christ, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. What, what Paul is saying and what I believe God is saying for all those who are in Christ is that the verdict is in, that we are accepted and received by God. He is pleased with us and he gives us meaning and significance as image bearers of him who have, who, have a, who, have a, who have a redeemed image of God. We have significance. We have meaning. That's apart from anything that we do. It's because God has given it to us graciously as a gift. Now, if that is the case, that gives us significant encouragement. It gives us significant comfort. It gives us significant fellowship. It gives us the heartfelt sympathy of God. All those things we talked about before from verse 1. That frees us now to glorious humility. No longer am I seeking identity and meaning through vanity, emptiness like a balloon. 
But this is glorious. The word glory in Hebrew also means weight. This is a, a, a weighty significance that, that now I can give myself to that which is truly meaningful, which is the glory of God and the good of other people, which means that now I'm free because I know that I already have meaning. I already have identity. I can be free to count others more significant than myself. I don't lose anything with that. Because I know I've already got significance from God. I can look to the interests of other people and not to the interests of myself because I know that I'm already taken care of by God. He's going to meet all my needs. He's already promised to do it. I'm in Christ. So what Paul is calling us to is to a unity, a joyful unity that looks like a glorious humility that, that forgets about myself and just is free to, to, to seek the good of other people. Now, this word is really important for us, I believe, today in this time in which there is so much division in our society. There's so many issues around which we can seek false unity. There's so many uh, issues that I can pursue trying to look for identity. I can, I can find guilt and shame if I don't measure up, or I can find uh, pride and arrogance if I do. And what God is calling us to is to a Radical humility that's totally dependent on the grace of God. So what does this mean for us today? What do we do with this text today? Living today in June 2020, what does this mean for us? I believe the first thing that it means for us is that if we want to live a life that is uh, joyfully unified with God's people and that is um, gloriously humble and we and these other people, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. We gotta look at Jesus. We gotta, we gotta keep our gaze on Him. We're gonna look next week again at this, at this beautiful poem that tells us more about what it looks like to, to, to look like Jesus. But, but, but we can look at Jesus in the scriptures. We can look at, at, at Jesus in, 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 in worship. Look at Jesus in the lives of our brothers and sisters. But when we come face to face with Jesus, what it's often gonna mean is repentance. Cause when I come to Jesus, He's gonna show me my need for Him and how impoverished I am without Him. And it's going to lead me to repentance. So look at Jesus and repent. Second, I think it means for us is we've got to listen to each other. We come from all different backgrounds, church family, and we have all different perspectives, all different political milieu, all different ethnic milieu. And, 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 and we're operating from those lenses. And so we want to listen to each other. We want to dialogue with each other. We want to keep communication lines and relationships open with each other so we can hear from each other. So we can really have that, that koinonia of the spirit that we talked about earlier. We want to learn from the perspective of others. We want to not only listen, but then learn. And, and learn how to, how to live vicariously and stand with each other. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve. And if someone's in pain, then we've got to learn how to care for them in that pain how to sit with them in that pain, how to bear the pain with them. So we have to look at Jesus, we've got to listen to each other, we've got to learn from each other's perspectives, and then we've got to labor from relationship. In Christ, we're no longer laboring for relationship. We have relationships secured in Christ. And that means we have relationships secured with each other. We have union together. So now we're going to labor from that relationship in loving and serving our community. Well, with that in mind,
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I thank you so much that you've called us to unity and you've called us to humility. And you haven't done that without empowering that. Thank you for Jesus, who both modeled for us what that looks like, but also died and rose again and empowered us with his Holy Spirit to live this out. Would you help us to be a unified church and a humble church for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.